You're listening to Malta Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Where you join us on the show, Legal Talk, and Alhamdulillah, Hafa, <clears throat> this evening on our Legal Talk, we have one of our favorites back, and that is uh, Attorney Hafez Muhammad Kubadia, who's, mashallah, very busy with his Zawa work, with his law work, and uh, many other great humanitarian work he does. Uh, Hafez Muhammad Kubadia, our n- attorney, and our resident uh, attorney also. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me how you're doing this fine, uh, beautiful evening. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair to you, Shafat, for the honor that you bestow on us. And uh, wa alaikum salam to your listeners for having me in their homes this beautiful evening. Um, nice to be with you. Always a pleasure to be with you. And alhamdulillah, I get to share some experience and to learn from you as well, Shafat. So thank you for having me this evening. Well, today I'm going to be the student, you know, when people say PTY, LTD, CC, I say, hey, what the hell is this? And between you and I, you know, I'm not in your game. So, you know, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll get into a topic uh, proper. But uh, you had a brother, Kamruddin, hey, was he Kalamuddin, that, you know, you proclaimed his message in your part of the world. A little about that, uh, Muhammad, and how was the evening and how did you feel? you know, imbibing a knowledge from someone I believe that was bestowed an award uh, by the King of Malaysia, if I'm not mistaken. Gee, so uh, I think uh, me and you also learn a few things that uh, the term Dato in Malaysia is similar to the term like a knighthood, sir term that would be alloc- uh, allocated by the King or the Queen of uh, England. So Malaysia has its own prestige titles which they allocate to people, certain people for their service in the Dean. And we were fortunate in that our guest this weekend, Dato Kamruddin, the Dai from Penang, Malaysia, was with us. And of course, the wonderful opportunity to share some ideas about Dawa. I must say, you know, also you, as somebody who has a passion for Dawa, it's great to meet people who are passionate about what they do, who have a fervent interest in talking about dawa, their successes, their failures, what makes them tick. Because we sometimes we feel uh, lonely being doing dawa. Sometimes, you know, one, two, three brothers going out into an area doing dawa. You feel that you're all alone, you know, a billion Muslims, two billion Muslims on the face of this earth. But sometimes you can feel lonely because we don't have enough ties out there. So, yes, Sheikh was with us um, on Sunday, we spent a day together. We actually finished it off with a program in Pretoria, Lodium, where he gave an excellent talk about um, how he embraced Islam, how he got, how went on to meet Sheikh Ahmed Dilat. He came to South Africa for a few months. He stayed with uh, uh, at the IPCI, I think it was 2006. So it was just after Sheikh Ahmed Dilat's demise, Rahimullah. And... Um, how he went on back to start the IPSI in Malaysia, which is the sister organization of the IPCI in Malaysia, in Penang, and uh, what he continues to do till today, alhamdulillah. So yes, it was great uh, listening to his experiences. It was, um, he also did an interview on the local uh, Islamic radio station that we have here. And um, people, uh, I suppose at the end of the day, we have to support the people who are doing this type of work because they are representatives of Islam 
at that particular level. And uh, the more representatives out there, inshallah, inshallah, the more the message of Islam can come across to the general masses, most of whom in this country are non-Muslim and as such unaware of the message of Islam. And um, uh, yes, so that was a beautiful, lovely Sunday that we had with Dato Kamruddin. There you heard that people, Dato, not data, Dato, yeah, Konche, not Dato Che. Oh, Malaysia, all right, very good. But uh, uh, Muhammad, you know, the certain points he made. Uh, number one, that he was a Roman Catholic, and that he uh, reverted to Islam. And it was uh, the startling eyes from the Noble Quran, where you know it uh, speaks about uh, the Pharaoh's body. You know, will be there kept for mankind till Yom Al Qiyamah to ponder upon and what this man did and so forth. And uh, then he spoke about uh, Morris Bukail. The Bible, the Quran, the science, and how Morris Bukhail went uh, and you know identified this body to be that of uh, uh, the Pharaoh that uh, Musa salam spoke to, and that Pharaoh that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala promised in the Quran that he will pre- uh, preserve for many, 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 many years. And then he also made some points uh, where he said, uh, you know, the body of Pharaoh was just found so many, you know, five, six, eight hundred years after what the Quran had said, and uh, there it is, uh, a proven prophecy already. And then he spoke about uh, many other things. And he said about, you know, he spoke about Abu Jahal. Was it Abu Jahal? Uh, that, uh, you know, he only had to say one word at the time of the revelation of that ayat where Allah said, uh, you know, uh, Abu Lahab and his wife will be, you know, thrown into hell and this and that. And imagine the ayat is there. Only Abu Jahal had to say one word. One word. La ilaha illallah. And that would have all thrown the whole of the Quran and Islam into the disarray. But, you know, all that, and he became a Muslim. And then he was giving out that booklet and asking questions and so forth. I found it, uh, I found his, uh, you know, um, methodology in calling people very effective indeed. And, you know, as you go through the time, uh, perhaps the methodology changes and so forth. But uh, a, a, a great character to, ha- to, to, to have around, a good character indeed. And Alhamdulillah, I mean, with me being with Ahmadi that I shared the moment where I told them how Ahmadi that ate his cucumbers and how he ate his uh, chicken and how the bones were masticated. And they were amazed, like, you know, that, uh, these are the things that Allah has given us the privilege to be with him. And it's amazing, uh, Muhammad, you and I don't do a world tour talking about Sheikh that everywhere because, you know, he's there. I, I wouldn't do it because with the technology, I feel, you know, you've got the Zoom and you've got the Skype and you've got this technology and traveling is really a tiring thing. But the other point you made as, as a da'i, and that's why I, I enjoy talking to you, but as a da'i, if you go wherever, Allah turns hearts. Listen to this, Muhammad. He turns hearts towards us. Very rarely, he turns hearts against us. What's your thoughts on Muhammad? Gee, you know, sometimes I look at the personality of Sheikh Ahmad Dirad and I think to myself how this man was loved by people from all different quarters. I find that even in some of the social media groups, you'd find that even the Shias would have reverence and respect for Ahmadidat, so much so that would, they would be even promoting what he had to say. And uh, no matter what grouping you come from an Islamic perspective, you find that Sheikh Ahmadidat did us proud, irrespective of which, whether which gam we came from, which town, which country, even as a young man traveling into uh, Saudi Arabia, when people found out Junubi Africa, the first thing is, what is Sheikh Ahmadidat's condition? How is he? Have you met him? So definitely, 
I think sometimes he was more well appreciated outside our country than he was in our country. Maybe we took him for granted over the years, over the decades, him having done the dawah. Uh, but I think he was well respected until today. Allah has given him an opportunity to continue, as they say, like from the grave to be able to do dawah because a lot of his material comes up on social media, on YouTube, people under their own uh, titles, under their own YouTube channels, so to say. They're promoting his work, they're translating his work into different languages. I've heard many uh, stories about how people, when they wanted to find out about Islam, how they went through the videos of Sheikh Ahmadira and how it meant so much to them. And um, yes, you spoke briefly about the Quran and without a doubt, without a shadow of doubt, the Quran changed many people's lives, including Dato's life when he spoke and uh, he says, you know, how when Sheikh Ahmadira gave him um, a book and referenced him and in there he gave him an English Quran also which he treasured and then he went on to study the Quran for many years and I look at him and I say this is a person who accepted Islam later on in life but can from for us as Muslims what lessons do we learn out of that one is that he submitted for three years to the to the study of the Quran under a particular Pakistani Sheikh in Malaysia and he learned the Quran and 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 like that today we are proud to say that there could be people who embrace Islam even later on in life, but go on to become better Muslims than us. As we sit there, we sit there in awe and we admire the work that gets done. We only hope and pray that through our efforts that somebody like Dado Kamruddin can come into this world, continue to take this work on, because we know uh, without, without a shadow of doubt, that uh, this is Sadaqa Jariya, this is something that continues to benefit you after you pass away. The knowledge that uh, you, 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 you leave behind and people benefit from. Like Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says that, that if the child, the son of Adam dies, then all his actions come to an end. And he mentioned three things, one of which, that the knowledge that the people benefit from after his demise. So yes, it could be in the form of writing books, it could be in the form of a bayan, it could be on a YouTube channel, it be, could be a WhatsApp message that gets promoted and circulated even after we pass on, that calls people towards goodness. Um, so these are the things that we must consider and verily, verily within the Qurans, the Quran, are they not just we know we understand ayah to mean verses but there's also another meaning to the word ayah and ayah means signs and verily in the quran there are many signs even when allah talks about meaning that uh, that uh, we will show pharaoh you know Allah is talking to Pharaoh and says, today we will save you with your body so that you may uh, be a sign for those who come uh, after you. And this is just one of the many, many, many signs that the Quran talks about. You spoke about uh, Surah Masad and Tabbat Yada Abi Lahab Yuatab. If Abu Lahab had to just say, La ilaha illallah, that would have been sufficient for the people to wonder if this Quran is from Allah. But Allah because of his perfect knowledge, knew that no matter how, even if the sun had to rise from the west and Abu Lahab would have to experience it, his heart would not have changed. So Allah concreted it, made it solidified his belief, and it would have been very easy for the kuffar of Makkah 
to uh, denounce the Quran by virtue of the action of one man. But it was never the case to be. And we know that to be a sign of the perfect knowledge of Allah, to be the qadr and the decree of Allah, that when Allah decrees something, we, me and you, Shafat, no matter how we try or what we try, we can never, never even begin to, to challenge or, you know, to, to change that. This is the decree of Allah and that is perfect. And we as Muslims, we accept that. Sakala for that, Hafizab. Uh, you know, absolutely brilliant. And Abu Lahab, they say he had a ruddy complexion, and Alhamdulillah, I knew exactly. I mean, the, being the uncles of Nabi Muhammad sallam, and the greatest opposition came to our Nabi sallam from within the family, uh, uh, Muhammad. And you know, I think uh, generally now they say you think a lot of family feuds. So there's nothing new, uh, Muhammad. No, no. So, so I think some of this clearly is an example to us. Why did some Hamza, why did Abbas, why did some of the uncles accept Islam and then Abu Talib, Abu Lahab, all of them then reject Islam? So uh, clearly without a doubt, the verse of the Quran tells us, Oh Nabi of Allah, verily you do not guide, you do not give guidance. Guidance um, is in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So without a doubt, this comes in as an example to us one, to say that as much as we try and our effort is, it is only because the ultimate decree in the mercy of Allah that somebody will accept Islam. Sometimes you spend years talking to a person and trying to encourage him. Maybe you want goodness for him, so you want to spend more time with him. He's good. His personality is by nature very good. And I have many friends like this, you know. I could phone them. They're non-Muslim, but I could phone them and say, we'd like to go into an into a area. People are ravaged by floods or are ravaged by poverty or something. We'd like to give out some members. As Christian people, they would give me money and say, is there a chance that we can assist? And I know that these people are very good. I mean, without a doubt, Allah has created these people also with that level of mercy that we, we can't just say is exclusive for Muslims. But when you talk to them about, say, my brother, you did so much for everybody else in this world. Is, isn't there something that you should be doing for yourself? And he asks you what you said. I'd like you to, to, to buy Janet for yourself. I'd like to, you to, to, to secure a piece of, of, of the year after for yourself. And he looks at you and you say, lie, 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 and he smiles and he looks away and you think to yourself, if only, if only you knew and understood the value of what Iman is, the, everything that you are doing, all this goodness, goodness you are doing, is just like catching water in a colander. It has very little value for you in the year after. Allah will re- reward you for what you do, obviously commensurate, but the ultimate prize, the ultimate prize, winning the game, is not taken up by these people. So, yes, so uh, uh, we sometimes also become despondent because we spend a lot of time and effort on family members. For those of us that have non-Muslim families and, you know, you, your friends, you spend a lot of time and effort, but their hearts are sealed. Summum bukmunamin, deaf, dumb, and blind, their hearts are sealed. No matter how you try to phrase it, no matter how, why, how convincing you are in your arguments, at the end of the day, there is a seal over their heart, and you should. We should not become overly despondent. The Prophet also became depressed when his uncle Abu Talib, who was really could be considered to be a very uh, close to being a Muslim, but not a Muslim, in the sense that he was the one protecting the Prophet. He was the one defending Islam. He was the one that the Prophet could count on. He was the ones generally that Muslims could count on. And if only he had to, only he had to say, and Allah knows best, of course, La ilaha illallah, 
that would have been his salvation. But we 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 learned lessons like this. We learned lessons like this that it is not your pedigree, you know, that takes you uh, into Islam. At the end of the day, we have to obviously be pure in our sincerity, ikhlas, and our iman for us to attain jannah. So whether you are Khan or a Kuvadia, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, Shafat. Hey, my wife says, hey, you're a Dular Khan. Why you say Khan, Khan, Khan like everyone? I said, Sami, huh? Let's leave that aside now. Just not say, you know, I come from Kabul and from this region. And, oh, these people like to do that. It is not as uh, our, uh, you know, learned uh, scholar says and our Hafez attorney, Hafez uh, Muhammad Kubania says, it is not your pedigree, but your piety that counts in the eyes of Allah. You know, Allah bless you. You know, I'll tell you the power of uh, acting as a Muslim and being, uh, what do you call you know, refined in your mannerism and that. And I remember, you know, there was this uh, uh, non-Muslim couple that uh, got to know me and, you know, they were in the sweet meat things and so forth. But they used to always ask me to come and give them a few thoughts and, you know, talks on Islam and all. So I used to do that. And yeah, subsequently, uh, though, you know, the lady said, you know, uh, Mr. Kano, she, she, she called me Shaf. You know, Shaf, I've got two plots and these were graves uh, at uh, the Brook Street uh, Cemetery. That's in Durban. And I think they had a price on it. And she says, you know what, uh, there's no need for us to have this. I'd like to, you know, maybe give it to you. So I looked at her. I said, no, you can sell it. It goes, you know, the, you'll get a, some buys. She said, no, I want to give it from the bottom of the heart to you. So I said, no, you don't give it to me. Uh, give it to the Islamic Burial Society. And I, I knew a few of the trustees. So she said, why not? You know, I, want I said, don't worry, they'll, they'll do the rest. But your reward for doing this will be with your maker, the creator and sustainer. Subsequently, Muhammad, she never accepted Islam, but she gave those two plots. I mean, the value must have been 50, 100 grand. I don't know. But, but you know, when she passed on, and in my mind, I said, Ya Allah, you know best. And you know best. Like, you know, you felt it that there's someone that didn't accept the uh, uh, Islam, but they gave a donation uh, towards that, uh, Muhammad. What's your thoughts? Gee, without a doubt, you know, like this, they are countless stories we can bring onto this discussion about non-Muslims that have been uh, benefactors and have been supporters and have been magnanimous um, with, their, with their wealth and have been always there to serve. Without a doubt, as much as, you know, we sometimes look at the super rich of the world, like the Bill Gates uh, and these people, and we think, but at some level, they are doing so much more than what other Muslim people are doing, for example, in Africa and trying to serve and, you know, bringing internet and basic services to, to communities here. And we think to themselves, we think to ourselves, you know, um, how beautiful isn't this? How, how much of a humanitarian isn't this particular wealthy person? Allah has given him, but he doesn't just, isn't kept it for himself. And like that, you know, there's many examples, but the thing that's missing of course, and that's why we, we're so passionate about our Dawah, is we want all these things to weigh heavily on the scale for you. And if you don't have a passport, you cannot travel. So without that passport, you can only dream of other countries. You may hear about how beautiful the beaches of Maldives and Mauritius are, but without that passport, you can't travel. And you could have all the money in the world, but without that passport, you can't travel. So that's my analogy here to you, and I use that many a times in our dawah that you know we have dreams to want to reach the year after and want to be good with our maker and our creator but you need a passport in order to sit at his feet and for to reach that particular goal 
we have to then, you know, it's our, our passport in the year after is not a piece of paper. Rather, it is, I believe there is none worthy of worship besides Allah. La ilaha illallah translates to. So, yes, all these good deeds for them, the Quran uses an expression, it's just dust in the wind, you know, scattered dust in the wind. It, it flies about and it doesn't really settle down on the scales, on the mizan, and it doesn't weigh in your favor. So, you know, a person, there is a narration that a person will stand in front of Allah and says, and say, but I did so much good in this world. Look at this. I fed so many, so many people and so many, I built so many educational institutions and people benefited with the water and the wealth. But Allah says, but if you did it for the world, then your reward is in the world. People recognize you to say, wow, so and so did so much, so and so did so much. And, and, and that should teach us a lesson in sincerity and in ikhlas, that when we do something, we do it solely for the purpose of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so that it weighs heavily for us on the day of Qiyamah, and that Allah accepts what we do. Otherwise, we, could, we are no better than those people that just do it like scattered dust, scattered particles in the wind. Yeah, like the foam in the sea that flies around. And uh, yes, uh, attorney Hafiz Muhammad Kuvadia didn't say like a candle in the wind. He said like a dust, yeah, the dust to dust. Well, Muhammad, yeah, you know, you and I, we can really go and do another show altogether. But uh, getting back to our topic, using company uh, companies as purchasing entities. Now, I want you to give us a lesson, a thorough lesson this evening. PTY, LTD, or CC, or trust. Hey, CC from Egypt. Yeah, you're listening. You better listen very carefully because our attorney, Hafez Muhammad Kubadia, is going to give us a lessons on this. Muhammad, I'm sitting back. I've got my tea one side. I got some mari biscuits and uh, cheese, and I'm going to put some uh, yeah, some some uh, golden <laughs> syrup on that. And I'm going to listen to you. And when you finish, I'll I'll pass on the leftovers to you. Bismillah. Go ahead, Muhammad. Gee, Jazakallah once again for that opportunity. So you're right. Maybe we should start at the very elementary level. What would you say? Companies 101, maybe going back to uh, the whole basic understanding of companies and legal entities and all that. So you mentioned the term CC, also known as a closed corporation. We still see some of these closed corporations floating about, but I must mention to you that for many years now, the company's act has actually been changed. And as a result of which you're finding now that um, uh, we don't, cannot register any new entities under a closed corporation. A closed corporation used to be members, generally up to 10 members, who are the, so to speak, the directors and the shareholders in a company. So it used to be in terms of administration, costs and complexity, it used to be a very easy company to, to manage and to report on and, uh, and, and for disclosure purposes. So you'd find that... Um, People would register closed corporations and they would use it as vehicles for trading, vehicles for purchasing various interests, including immovable property. So that was very common in the early years when it got established, and more particularly in the 80s, 90s, and up to about 2010, when the closed corporations actually then became defunct. So the Companies Act was then uh, revised, and in terms of the new laws, the closed corporation ceased to exist. But it didn't mean that if you owned a closed corporation, you couldn't trade with it. Yes, you could. You could. So, for example, yourself and your wife would have 
uh, would be the members on a close cooperation and maybe you'd own 75% and your wife would own 25%, uh, the combined uh, net uh, result would be you have between you and your wife you have a hundred percent interest and as as a result of which any decision making processes were generally done with a resolution of the members of the close cooperation so if you needed to sell a particular asset you would you and your wife would prepare a resolution sign a resolution authorizing them the, for the particular asset or motor vehicle to be sold and that was generally how it used to be now uh, that that didn't meet really international requirements in terms of transparency, in, tra- in terms of company uh, readiness, more especially for international trade. Uh, I think South Africa was also under a bit of pressure to try to conform and make it necessary. So the international standard is like what we have, a proprietary limited or even a limited company. And limited companies are those companies that uh, are generally bigger in nature and tend to share or trade on the stock exchange. So they would issue huge amounts of shares and those shares are generally bought and sold and and, and also referred to as public companies. Um, so, uh, you know, your, your, your pick and pays and your supermarkets and your uh, huge companies have shares which they buy and sell albeit on a stock exchange, and as a result of which you'll find that um, uh, you, 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 you'd have, this is the type of company. But by and large, we, the middlemen or the smaller businesses, tend to open up what's called a PTY limited. So proprietary limited is a smaller company that's made up of both um, directors and shareholders and directors and shareholders are not necessarily one and the same person like you'd find in a close corporation you could appoint independent directors and you would you would have um, shareholders and the shareholders would then make uh, uh, would then be truly the owners of the company and the the directors of the company are generally the people that run and manage the company so you'd find that for example that uh, I'd like to open a company and I'd like to appoint my accountant as the director together with myself because between the two of us, we will be able to take this company that we got onto a different level. He would give me the type of advice that I need. We would uh, make financial decisions together. But the shareholders in the company could very well be my family. My wife and my kids are the shareholders (coughs) and they would benefit from the decisions that we make. So we have a director's salary. A person that gets appointed as a director generally is entitled to a salary. He makes the decision making, he makes the decisions on behalf of the PTY Limited or the company for the benefit of the shareholders and you issue shareholders and you issue share certificates. Sorry, you issue shares and you issue share certificates to confirm that um, these are the beneficial owners of the company and that uh, they truly own the company. So just to give you an example of how what I sometimes use, I say you have a taxi and in the taxi you have passengers and you have a driver and you decide that from Durban you want to travel through to Port Elizabeth and there could be three or four different routes or roads or decisions in terms of time and where to stop and where to continue with your journey. And by and large, the driver makes these decisions. He decides that this road here would be the shortest route, the quietest route, the easiest route for us to, to, to use. And the driver makes these decisions. 
but he necessarily doesn't have work at the destination. He is just there to assist for the journey. And the shareholders, who are the passengers in the comp- uh, in the comp- in the taxi and in the company, they would obviously benefit from the decisions that a driver would make. That's we have a good director, and our director saw a good business opportunity, and he made a lot of money. And as a result of which. Um, the dividends that get increased at the end of the year because there were some profits that were realized. And this example of a taxi then, just to show you and use that, so a practical example for a person like you with um, basic, uh, with, with the fundamental understanding now, can I fully understand the nature of what uh, PTY Limited is. So by and large, we, we open up a proprietary limited. You also have an association not for gain, Section 18 company, or previously, sorry, section previously known as Section 21 company, and there, those are your those are your companies that you would use generally not for financial, uh, not for profit, so to speak. So, in other words, you may want to establish a, um, a, 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 a charitable organization. Your charitable organization would receive donations from uh, benefactors and from donors, and over the months you need to do bank and deposit that money. People need a recipient account in, into which they'd like to pay their monies. So you then open up the, uh, this type of company, and in this type of company, now that you register a company, it is regarded as a company uh, uh, for all in legal intents and purposes, a separate entity, more so if you pass away, then the, the company continues to exist even though you're no longer around. So new directors get appointed, and these directors would now receive money, spend money in accordance with what needs to get done. So it's not, sometimes people must understand that if you open up a non-profit company, a not-for-profit company, you'd find that people are still entitled to take a salary, even though the company doesn't, that aims and objectives of the company is not to make a profit. The aims and objectives is to provide a service by receiving money, converting that cash into food or into wells, into uh, research, and to use that money then for the purposes that it was donated. But people need may need to get employed. People, you need drivers, you may need a vehicle, you need people to go out and physically hand out these hampers, so you need employees. So for all other intents and purposes, this company is registered, but the profit that's made at the end of the year is not a dividend and uh, that's that's given to any beneficiaries or any shareholders that is carried forward. And there's some tax benefits, obviously, for having this type of company is that do- donors generally can get some sort of tax rebate if you register it accordingly and you're able to issue these 18.3 certificates to say that this company is not for profit and any donation made to this company would then uh, be, uh, avoid the necessary taxations. And yes, as a result of which, you know, uh, they, they, this company does exist within our legal framework. Then you also have trusts. And I think we can just briefly mention a trust. So a trust is not a company in that it is not registered with the CIPC, or previously known as CIPRO. This um, a trust is registered by way of a trust deed, and um, it could be something, uh, trust that is, you establish whilst you are alive, or, uh, which is called an inter vivos trust, or it could be a trust that you establish upon your death. And we have many of these foundations 
for example, you know, the Nelson, Nelson Mandela Foundation, these generally are trusts, or, or you could have uh, create a trust that upon my death, uh, I'm going to have a trust called the ABC Trust, and this trust now, its purpose would be now to do charitable work, or its purpose would be now the assets which I now own will not go to any party except that it will go into a trust. <coughs> and as a result of which, the trust now owns the properties and a trust then what is, is, is has what's called trustees. So the trustees now are similar to, the, have roles similar to that of a director in that a trustee makes the trust decisions, the day-to-day -day trust decisions on behalf of the trust beneficiaries. So the trust beneficiaries are actually the people who would benefit financially from the trust in those types of trusts. You know, you have these trusts, which are family trusts for the purpose of serving family interest, but you could create a trust that's a charitable trust that has different aims and objectives. For example, masjids are generally set up also on trusts. So they have trusts, any asset that, um, the uh, that you, the masjid acquires goes into the name of the trust and as a result of which then if you pass away as trustees the masjid continues and the new benefit new trustees get appointed and the masjid at the end of the day is the beneficiary everything is used for the purposes of serving the best interests of the masjid and like that it continues for generation after generation after generation yes um, that's in brief some of the vehicles that people generally use for the purposes of acquiring trusts. Each of it comes with its own accounting aspect, and you know people use it then in, uh, to to benefit from the tax incentives, or you know we we come out or the benefits that would come out from the tax perspective. That's why sometimes people avoid. Purchasing properties in your own personal name. No, Muhammad. I've been thinking if uh, you know people are buying maybe uh, things through a uh, through a company, and you know, uh, you know, will it uh, save individuals from going insolvent? You know, do they think uh, like that? You know, yeah, there's a company here. Uh, one person just can't go insolvent, and so forth. I don't know if you're getting my gist there. I get your trust. I think uh, this is a general fair in question that we receive day to day. So what happens if I go insolvent? Or what happens if my business interest goes, uh, the company goes, gets, go, goes into liquidation? And that's a very valid question. So you find that today, especially people, the nature of some people's business is extremely risky. The nature of some people's business is highly speculative. And you find that um, they need to protect or ring fence that investment, knowing full well that if something goes wrong with that business interest, I don't want my personal assets to be uh, to be seized or to be attached to something of that nature. So yes, generally when people make these decisions, it's to avoid then catastrophic failures in their lives. They want to, it's it's the same reason I think people consider what marital regime you want to use when you get married. Either you can get married in community property or out of community property, and it has legal consequences. So people make these decisions when they uh, get married. Similarly, people make these decisions when they're embarking on a new business project. So 
for example, generally when people open up a new business, they need to register for VAT. They need to register, first register the company, register for VAT. And now they're going to open up a fish and chip shop on the corner. That was the uh, what the, 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 the business interest is about. But there isn't a level of confidence into the nature of the business because I'd like to do fish and chips, but I'm not sure if this product of mine is going to work on the corner, maybe because there's no passing traffic, maybe because my spot is not good, maybe because my product is not good. I'm still going to learn and listen in time to come. I may want to sell the business interest, so I'm going to be looking at all these factors. So the first thing, naturally, he would open up a PTY limited. He would try this business. So he's going to buy half a million rand worth of fryers. He's going to buy tables and chairs. He's going to spend a lot of money in the in- interior, in the decor. And it's, it so happens. And, you know, statistically speaking, they say over 50% of businesses don't survive in, after the first year. And if it does survive, so many more collapse within the first five to 10 years because generally businesses uh, don't manage to go past 10 years. Only a small amount of business actually succeed past 10 years. And we know that we see so many people trying this business into spending hundreds of thousands of rands, buying furniture, equipment. They may even have to buy a vehicle and employ so many staff. And then a year goes by, maybe for the first few months it was a hit and people, uh, because it was a novelty in the market, maybe it was a ice cream and, you know, he opened it up in the summer season. And then in the winter season, he realized, but this is not working out for me. I haven't had a customer the whole week because it's too cold and nobody wants to purchase ice cream in winter. I didn't realize it's going to be so slow, but this business can't sustain itself. I generally just make a bit of profit in summer, but in winter for the for four months of the year, I don't sell one scoop of ice cream. So yes, it could be that a person takes embarks on these business opportunities on, uh, you know, with, with unsure what the future holds and he ring fences it. He puts it in the name of a PTY Limited. Now, you are protected as a director or even as a beneficiary to uh, against a collapsed business if it's in a PTY Limited. Yes, the Sharia ruling is different and, you know, that, that can be discussed later on. But just for the purposes of completion of the legal aspect of it, if you open up a business and you do not sign surety with any creditor, that means Mr. Joseph company joseph supplies you with cleaning material and he gives you credit uh, uh, so so that you you can uh, you can pay him back after 30 days but if he also says i need a personal surety from the directors here should his account fail to get met then he will have a legal case against even all those parties that sign surety be the director a shareholder any person that he deems would be would 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 be of some value to sign a surety, he can ask for the surety. So my brother's creditor can ask me to come in saying, you know what, your brother's a lawyer and I believe he must stand surety. So be careful, you know, you signing any documents, some of these documents, and especially moreover with banks and financial institutions, they're always 100%. They won't give you a loan to a PTY Limited until they make sure that they have sufficient security and sureties from the directors, especially uh, before they lend money to a to a uh, company, and if you are if you are a surety, then you would be responsible for the debts of the company, um, even though you know you ordinarily would have been protected in terms of the law. Well, uh, Muhammad, that was amazing. That was amazing indeed, and Alhamdulillah, brilliant uh, to listen to you. You know, so concise, so, so precise. 
it's the years of experience you had and the confidence. Are you perhaps a lecturer at maybe at university or at uh, one of these, uh, you know? Uh, I, I must school? tell you, you may not know, I'm a lecturer uh, every few weeks on uh, Merkaz Sahaba, Friday evening. Allah Akbar. <laughs> so I get more exposure, more experience from my interaction with you, uh, even uh, notwithstanding the fact that I'm formally not in an institution. But Alhamdulillah, I must say, um, Allah has afforded me the opportunity that I get called upon from time to time to do certain presentations to non-Muslim audiences. So you find um, there would be Muslim, uh, non-Muslim attorneys that get together and say, we need... Uh, uh, a discussion on uh, Islamic worlds because we have Muslim clients that come to us that ask us to pre prepare uh, Islamic worlds or to buy their state and when we get the world it's in terms of Sharia. Yes, we do do these types of presentations but without a doubt what we learn here with you on this opportunity like this springboards us to have the confidence and the knowledge to be able to explain and expound on Islamic principles together with the legal aspects at a particular level. You sound like a million dollar, not dollar people. I made a mistake. You sound like a million dinars. Yeah, forget that dollar story. Now, Muhammad, you know, should an individual, you know, buy property in uh, his name or his company or a trust? Uh, what would you advise? So I always say that um, although it's a legal function, it should be done in conjunction with your financial person. Speak to your accountant and tell your accountant, listen, I'd like to purchase a property in the name of a company. Should I use an existing company or should I open up a new company for this new acquisition? Because that person knows your finances best and is able to tell you. But if you purchase it, for example, in your own name, this is going to be the financial and tax consequences. If you open it in the company, this is what we need to be careful of. And this is what. So, yes. Um, they, they, there's, you know, different strokes for different folks, as they say. In some instances, and this is mostly with regard to the property that you will be living in, um, I generally uh, encourage people when I'm faced with this question, is the property that you are living in, put it on your names, your personal names. If you decide to share it with you and your wife and you want to give her that half as a donation, you can then bring the two of you in as purchases and purchase the entity in, in your own personal names and don't open up a company, not at this stage, not for this particular Companies require administration. You need to file tax returns at the end of the year and for that you need accountants and they would charge you a few thousand rand uh, every year to manage the company and to submit returns and uh, it's, it's, it's just unnecessary expenses because you'd like to avoid spending that money where it's uh, and, and only spending where it's necessary and over and above that uh, when you purchase a property especially a home that you intend using for your own personal domestic use then you don't get the benefit of capital gains the exemptions are only applicable to properties if it's in your personal name and that you are living in the property and if you do qualify in terms of personal name and call, uh, you're living in the property you buy a property this year for a million rand and you sell it next year for two million rand the profit that you achieve on the sale of this property is tax-free you show it through your books it's uh, money that you will reflect in your in your bank statement and you've got nothing to hide from SARS because your 
affairs were transparent and you made a wise financial decision by purchasing it in your own name. However, if you put it in the name of a company, irrespective of how much profit was made, at the end of the year, you've got to bring it in. So you purchased a home for a million rand, you sold it for two million rand, the profit that was made is reflected in your company and it is taxable at the company rate, which is um, at a, a particular rate, 28% is the company tax. And uh, with that also, uh, some, but sometimes we, we, we then have to advise people that this is the company tax rate and people want to then purchase properties in the name of the trust. That has its advantages. It, the major disadvantage of purchasing property in the name of the trust is the, uh, is the tax consequences because your tax rate on trusts is actually 43%, which is extremely heavily taxed. And for that reason, it could be it could serve as a deterrent on income and income producing activities. So maybe I would tell you, Shafat, that beautiful holiday home that you have in Mshlanga that's not earning an income for you. Every time when you fly into Durban, you'd like to use that beach cottage of yours for yourself and your family. And if you pass on, you'd like for your children to benefit from that home and their children to continue. So maybe that's the type of asset you'd put into a family trust because after you pass on, there is no transfer of ownership because that property never belonged to you. It belonged to a trust and a trust by its nature, doesn't die. You know, it's just, you just replace older trustees with the younger blood. So you get new trustees that come in, they continue. So uh, yes, a lot of family properties and heirlooms are best if they put into a trust. Income earning activities, you have a block of, flock of flats with a few shops, it earns you an income. My advice, I discourage people from putting into trusts um, because obviously the tax is quite heavy and you don't want to be settled with paying too much tax, then in other words, you're only working for the receiver of revenue for SARS, and there's very little, the financial benefit that actually trickles down may not be as rewarding as you originally thought it to be. Now, I know Allah's blessed you, you know, you and your friends and family members, you have quite a few properties, you invested in uh, business uh, properties, flats and uh, so forth. Uh, duplexes and all that. Uh, what is the best way to invest in uh, property in South Africa, especially taking into consideration the uh, present situation in the country uh, where, you know, there's a lot of instability uh, and how the markets are reading and so forth, uh, Mohammed? So, gee, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, I think over the years we've seen the economy shift. We've seen we were there to experience in the 90s what, how, 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 uh, how 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 financially viable commercial properties especially could be even if you just had to buy a little house somewhere and rent it out you'd find that this was what our parents taught us to be excellent sound and safe financial investments so we we encouraged our clients and people who had a few rents go in and buy a second home uh, you first of all as the property prices increase as properties generally do, you would receive a benefit 5% per annum, 4% per annum, but that would gen definitely be some sort of growth that we're seeing in the market. 
That's the first advantage. And the second advantage is that you are able to put tenants will be able to pay you directly and you are able to manage the property. Without, so if there's expenses involved in the property, you're personally involved in managing the income and managing the expenses. That way, it could, you could benefit from a maximum maximum benefit from an investment. So that, that could be maybe contrasted to some sort of a, um, a brokerage or some company that does financial and property investments where they take from everybody 50,000 or 100,000 rand, they pull 3 million rand, they buy you, you, you're probably aware of some of these companies, I'm not going to mention names, but what these companies did is they pooled investors' monies together and that, you know, offering lucrative returns, they would sometimes offer you 12% per annum and people used to flock into these things and we found that many of them collapsed over the years. One is because they were overselling themselves. You know, guaranteed returns of 12%. In the meantime, the property market was such that uh, things were slowly collapsing underneath their feet. We've seen it happen in the last 10, 15, 20 years. So where what we thought to be was safe property, uh, if, as far as possible, we advise clients, it's time to start selling out these properties. Look at what the CBD is in your part of the world, what the CBD is in my part of the world, those people that had huge investments in buildings in uh, Durban CBD and Johannesburg CBD, today those birthday buildings are worth zero. In fact, if 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 you, they, they, the owners are willing to give it away, or in other words, they have abandoned these buildings, and in most of these cases, these buildings are hijacked and the owners have no say over these buildings. So yes, we nobody would have envis envisaged 30 years ago, when we came into a new dispensation, that this country will be looking like this after 30 years. We thought it's time to stimulate the economy. Let's buy and sell property. This is the brick and mortar. This is the safe investment. It's better than what a stock exchange is giving you. It's better than what money under the mattress is giving you. And a lot of people, apart from their day-to-day -day business, use this as financial opportunities to benefit from. And alhamdulillah, maybe for many years, I'd say for the last century before that, our forefathers purchased and developed properties and they understood the value of the property. In fact, we know that even the Jews own various properties within the Johannesburg area and they had their names, the Goldstein and this and that, and their names were on the buildings. And they, because they did something and they were profitable in it, we followed suit and we did something. And for many years, there was good benefit. But then, of course, you know, we found, and more especially in the recent years, some of the factors that we've seen that have actually eroded the value of a building has been the changing of the laws to protect tenants more than it has to protect the landlord, number one. Number two is the, the load shedding and the intermittent supply of electricity. So any reasonable business doesn't want to, can't trade normally because there's many hours in the day that he should shut everything down and his stuff is just hanging around and doing nothing. So that's, that's also now impeded the growth of the economy, growth of small businesses. And if small businesses don't grow, large businesses don't grow and the economy fails at the end of the day. So that was the other thing that you're finding. And then urban decay, you find that people started moving out of the cities. You know, in the early years, people would drive through the streets of Johannesburg, drive through the streets of Cape Town, drive through the streets of, uh, of, of Durban, 12 o'clock at night, admiring the beauty of the city, the fountains, the parks, the lights, the waterfalls, all these things we, we did and we appreciated. And our buildings had value even in the CBD. But it's unfortunate that um, with, with crimes coming into the CBD, with drugs, 
but this, like they say, the foreigners coming in and hijacking buildings, this has been a further obstacle in, in the development and, and the survival of the inner city and property values have plummeted there. So yes, some of the other factors, you know, we, there's, there's a number of factors. Of course, uh, the, our currency is, is worthless. The interest rate is through the roof. Property has become unaffordable now. So you can't even put your property on the market and try to sell it at fair market value because you may just be offered 50% of what the value of the building may truly is, even if there is some value. Otherwise, you just might as well take a match and burn the building because that's, that's, that, that would be the end of your problems. But yes, um, I think that the shift has been made amongst uh, uh, uh entrepreneurs to move away from the conventional way of doing business. I I, I say, you know, there's some element of uh, benefit in a property. So, you know, in a few years time, my son may get married. I've got a few rents to spare. There's a house coming up close to where I stay. I like the house. It's giving me good value for money. I would say purchase that property because in time to come, your son could obviously buy it from you or rent it from you or even use it. Uh, so you know that there is some family wealth that's, that's, that you could benefit from. Number two is it's, it's of close proximity to where you stay. So for you to knock on the door of the tenant and say, listen, let me have a look at what the condition of the property is. Have you paid your rental on time? You're not leaving in, in the hands of an agent 600 kilometers away to look after your investment. These are some of the, the benefits that you could use. And property, see, at the end of the day, a property is still an asset that people need to have. Even if the market collapses completely tomorrow, you and me need a roof to live under. And for that reason, we will still be buying properties. So, yes, people will always be buying properties. It may not be the best of investments in the future, but it's something that we need. It's an absolute necessity. It's the single most important financial purchase you're going to make your whole life. So, uh, there'll always be a need. And we have a love for this country no matter what. And... uh, we don't see ourselves moving away. We don't want to be tenants our whole life. It just makes sense. Purchase a home for yourself. Live, take that advantage. Use your asset. Take full advantage of that. And um, your family will benefit from these types of investments at the end of the day. Jazakallah for that, uh, Muhammad. And, uh, you know, just thinking uh, all these uh, properties, all these investments. And I don't know how true this was. They said uh, prior to the new dispens- uh, dispensation, uh, we had uh, the uh, Jews selling up and running away. Uh, and, uh, you know, most of the properties were uh, picked up and bought by by our, you know, our brothers. How true uh, was that, uh, Mohammed? Well, see, remember what happened is this whole Group Areas Act then was demolished. So as a result of which... We wanted to expand our network of investments and there was buildings that we had seen that we were now able to acquire and uh, was giving us good returns. Now, a lot of areas, even in the white areas, the previously known as white areas, we purchased properties and sometimes we paid premium prices because the mentality was, if the school wants this property, he's going to pay for it. I'm not going to give it away for free. So we paid premium prices. So uh, uh, from a Johannesburg aspect, there was areas like Mayfair, Mayfair West, Homestead Park, Ridgeway, Rosettenville, uh, or Mondi, which was previously classified white. But because the Indians loved it, and once one or two families go in there, they tend to encourage their family and their friends, come in here, let's get... Um, Let's get uh, establish a small Muslim society here and get a masjid going and a madrasa going. And like that, 
the, they, they established this, but it came at a small cost. People were people were uh, people were paying prices. They didn't get it for free. People paid prices for these properties, and at the end of the day, you know, we benefited uh, in the sense that we expanded our net worth. But uh, how long did it sustain itself? You know, in years to come, some of these areas then became bad because foreigners started taking over drugs and crime then started settling in. The crime has escalated in many areas in, in this country in the last 30 years. I think we don't want to beat around the bush and, you know, say things in a different term. But the reality of the situation is we're living in fort fortified uh, estates nowadays, you know. We have so much so that in Johannesburg especially, I don't know what it is in your part of the world, but we have these boom gates in all the residential areas and we've become prisoners within your own area. Mm -hmm. And this has been a major concern is the safety over the years. And once the safety uh, uh, drops in a community, then the value of the property automatically decreases. Yeah, all living in gated com uh, communities and, uh, you know, you know, it doesn't come cheap. You have to pay the security company for that also. Well, uh, I thought uh, maybe you'll give them some uh, re-hooker coolie cookies and get a discount. But that didn't work out when you bought the properties uh, in the area, Mohammed. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we have one adversary and that's the Jew. The Jew boy always seemed to get the best end of the deal. But the Indians have given him, a, given them a run for their money over the years. But Allah has given them that benefit in this dunya, um, you know, the, 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 we learn this uh, in, in Islam that uh, Jews were given many benefits. The Bani Israel were given ben, many benefits and Allah has given them an opportunity in this world to benefit financially from around the world. They, they're such a small percentage of humanity, but yet they control the global, global interests around the world. And me and you as people living with... Uh, our, uh, in, in, in a community where we see or living in, in, in times where we can see how powerful this, they are as lobbyists, as economists, as uh, businessmen. I mean, there's the pick and pay and Raymond Ackerman and all these people. We mentioned these names and uh, only to use as an example to say that these people started with very little, but in the course of their life left billion rand mega stores and industries and companies behind them and Allah gave them that in the dunya Allah knows best what is left for them in the akhirah well Muhammad absolutely a brilliant and I, I must have said that 10 times uh, this evening because I've really enjoyed your company you added uh, you know a calmness a tranquility and you know you did it like it was like chewing bubble gum or eating gajar halwa or your better your butternut soup with chicken and corn. I don't know how or what uh, variation you like, but I'll leave it again. Your parting words before we let you go. Jazakallah once again. Uh, the, this hour that we spend together seems like a few minutes. Uh, I hope yes. that I was able to do justice to our topic this evening. You told me, uh, let's do this topic. And I thought, yes, what a wonderful opportunity uh, to enlighten the public and to use what we have learned over the years in your next acquisition and your next purchase out there. So once again, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity. We thank your listeners for giving us the ear for the last one hour of the uh, of this evening. And Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. To our attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. Mashallah, wonderful human being indeed. Time for us to go for, uh, yeah, no, we're actually going for the Isha Azan, and inshallah, we will continue after that.